Good afternoon, church. What a joy to be together. Before we jump into Acts, we're going to be uh, back in Acts today, in Acts 17. Uh, I'm supposed to uh, talk to you guys about this upcoming Sunday. We've mentioned this a couple times, an email's gone out about this, and another one will go out this week. But this coming Sunday, so a week from today, September 12th, is going to be the first preview gathering our preview Sunday, where we kind of try on uh, what it would look like to come together as one church with West County Bible Church, the church that owns this building that we're renting from, uh, to potentially plant a new church together. So we would love for you guys to come and be a part of that with us next Sunday. We'll be in this space at 9 a.m. and 1045. We'll have child care available at 1045. Please, if you are able to come worship with us, um, pray over that gathering, pray that God would give us all tons of clarity and wisdom on, on what his best is for, for this church family and for the community. I am excited about the coming weeks and stepping into kind of a, a new future together. Uh, but if that, that is this coming Sunday, September 12th. Again, you'll get an email reminder about that. I want to see all of you guys there, if you are at all able to be there. Uh, but today we're continuing our series in Acts. So this last week, we, we, we jumped into, or we, we kind of finished out Acts 16. We spent time talking about the miraculous work that God did to plant a church in Philippi. Now, if you've been following along in this Acts series with us, then honestly, it's not that surprising of a story, right? Like, we're into Paul's second missionary journey, and we've seen him do some amazing, amazing things up to this point. But, but I think the Philippi story is interesting because we get a really extended, like zoomed in, like long scenes look at the meat of planning a church, what God is doing. And, and what we talked about last week was this idea that, that God is working in all sorts of ways to call all kinds of people unto himself, right? We saw him overcome strategic obstacles. We saw him overcome spiritual oppression. We saw him overcome opposition, even violent opposition from the established government authorities and draw unto himself a single Gentile businesswoman and, 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 and a slave girl who had been demonized as well as a good patriotic Roman soldier, right? This really diverse group of people in less than ideal circumstances through the faithful preaching of the word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, drawn to life, drawn to freedom, drawn to salvation. And when Paul and Silas leave Philippi, bruised and bloody, right, because they got publicly whipped with rods for preaching the gospel there, when they leave, they leave a city that has a church of Jesus Christ, that is full of brothers and sisters who are actually fellowshipping together, actually pursuing Christ, actually growing in their faith, which is insane. And we as believers today bear the fruit of that, because some 10 years later, Paul would write a letter to that church, thanking them for sending him a financial gift. The book of Philippians, right? What an insane story. We are continuing the story today into Acts 17. Oscar Wilde, the poet-slash-playwright-slash-all-around weirdo, is famous for saying there are two tragedies in life. The first is to not get what you want. And the second is to get it. And there are a few things more pretentious than starting out your sermon with a quote from a poet. So to balance that out, I want to let you guys know, I only knew that quote because I heard it in an episode of The Simpsons. And that is 100% true. That is 100% true. <laughs> but there is, there is some truth 
kind of in this, this truism, right, that's been preserved from this guy, this, this idea that there's something about the human soul that is, that is tragic and untenable, that we desire all these things. We have these deep desires that flow in and out of our souls, in and out of our bones, in and out of our hearts and our minds, and yet we are creatures that are never satisfied. If you knew me in my late teens and into my early 20s, I was a person who was driven by a lot of desires. Good desires, some good desires, some bad desires. But, but really, if I had been willing to be honest with you, which I probably wouldn't have, but if I'd been willing to be honest with you, I would have said that, man, if, my, if I could achieve, if I could get these three or four things, life would be good. If I could graduate from this school and not flunk out, if I could find a good girlfriend, if I could just hate myself a little less, if I could have some deep friendships, like those sorts of things, right? If I could achieve this, 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 and this, then it would work out. Life would be good. I would be fulfilled. Here's the insane thing about that. In God's grace, I found most of those things. And you know what? I think we all know this, right? Don't satisfy the hungers of your heart. Just don't. Found a wonderful wife. I graduated school. I got a job. I was able to do those things. And all I did was just replace those desires with the next desires on the list. And all I did was keep moving down this road of honestly just insatiability. And then I met a couple people. A couple older pastors in my church. I say older. Older than me is like a 19-year-old, so young people. <laughs> I met a couple uh, believers who showed me a little something of who Jesus is. My relationship with church at that point in my life was a tricky thing. I really believed the gospel, and I desired to be a man of God, but I, I had built up just through my own insecurities, my own secret sins, my own my own failures, I built up this idea that church was the place you go to hide and put your mask on. It's not the place that you go to be honest, to be real. It's not safe to do those things. And I met a couple men in my late teens and early 20s who just showed me a different kind of Christianity. Showed me Christianity without pretending, that modeled confession, that, that showed me that, that, that me, right, even in my sin, even in my anxiety, even in the dark parts of my person, I could be present, I could be safe, I could be loved, I could be known. I learned that in the church of Jesus, you are welcome. You're welcome no matter who you are, no matter what you are, you get to, if you're a human being, you get to come to Jesus exactly as you are. I saw these guys do that. They invited me to do that. And that, that deepened as I worked through college and I had a couple really intimate and deep Christian relationships that taught me like deep levels of community and confession and just the invitation that exists in the gospel to come exactly as you are with all of your baggage, all of your brokenness, all of your hurts, all of your doubts, all of your desires to come before the cross and find life and find freedom and find identity and find something worth living. Tim Keller says in his book on marriage, to be fully known and fully loved is all that we long for. Fully known and fully loved. At this point, you're going, I feel like you're rambling, Pastor. Like, what are we talking about? If you had asked me and I had been honest, I would have given you a list of things that I desired out of life. 
to have a good life. And we can all sit with a little bit of hindsight and go, those are nothing. Those are nothing. They're fine, but they don't, you can't build your life on those things. I wasn't looking for what the gospel was offering me. But when I found it, when I experienced the truth of who Jesus is, the power of the gospel, the invitation of the family of God, it awoke in my heart something new, something fresh, something that you can actually build your life on, something that actually satisfies, which is what we're talking about today. We're talking about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is rarely what you are looking for, but it is actually what you need. It is, it is rarely, if we're honest in our sin and our selfishness, is rarely what we actually long for. But man, when you taste it, when you taste and see that the Lord is good, and I know that's like one of those church, like it's a biblical phrase, right? It's one of those phrases we say in church enough that you can hear it and kind of, mm, like that church thing we do, right? But move past it. I'm serious when I say this. When you taste and see that God is good, that He actually loves you, that He actually desires what is best for you, that He actually has your best interests in mind, I trust you. I promise you, beloved of Jesus, you will find something worth desiring, something worth chasing after, something worth planting your life in. So, Acts 17. Starting in verse 1, we read this. Now, when they had passed through the Amphalus and Apollonia, man, I should have practiced those, they came to Thessalonica. I did practice that one where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and raise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your family. Thank you for your church. Thank you for coming together on a holiday weekend, on a beautiful day, to sing, to be together, to celebrate, to pray, to confess, but most of all, Jesus, to hear from you, to meet with you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate your text today, that you would be our discipler, that you would be our preacher, that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, that we would be soft and receptive to what you have for us today, and that we would all leave this place today having heard from you. We love you, Jesus. 
We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do today. I want to I want to walk back through this story, right? We're going to put it kind of in its context within Acts. We're going to kind of walk through just this experience that Paul and Silas have in Thessalonica. By the way, this is actually part of a larger thing going on. When we jump into Acts the next time and we go to the next city, there's kind of this contrast between Thessalonica and Berea, right? But today we're just going to look at Thessalonica. And essentially what we're going to see is is two things here. As as we talk about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, we're going to see two ways that's expressed in this text. First, in Paul's encounter in the synagogue where the Jews are kind of battling, debating, engaging Paul on what it means to be Messiah. And second, we'll see this in the Gentile response of the city rulers as they kind of weigh and think through this disturbing report about these men saying there is a different Caesar, his name is Jesus. And we'll kind of look at those two pieces as kind of a baseline to bring us around to this really kind of old Jesus-y idea of the upside-down kingdom of God. And that's going to ultimately, I think, lead us to one of my favorite teachings from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll end our time with a note that Paul sent to Timothy late in his life. And then we'll just celebrate the Gospel. Sound good? Rock and roll. So, you know where we're at. We're in the second missionary journey Uh, Paul and Silas now have been sent out by the church in Antioch, originally on a care mission to go and visit the Galatian churches that were planted on the first missionary journey, but then the Holy Spirit intervened and shifted and changed this into a new missionary endeavor. They travel across Galatia and Asia, modern-day Turkey, and and through a vision and a dream that they're sent from the city of Troas over into Macedonia, modern-day Greece, And, and this is really kind of where the rubber hits the road in the second missionary journey as Paul and Silas and Timothy travel across Greece and then make their way back across the Mediterranean, back into uh, Asia, and then make their way eventually back to, uh, to, to Antioch where they started. So last week, when we jumped in, we saw the story at Philippi, the first major city, this really kind of drawn-out image of how God works in all kinds of ways to draw all kinds of people unto himself, right? This beautiful picture of God planting a church in a difficult place And then the story continues. It picks up as they're kind of working their way along the Greek coast, and we end up in the city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia in this day. This is kind of a region within the Roman Empire, and a couple things to know about it. The first one is this is what was called a free city. Now, this kind of put it in a weird middle ground. We've talked a little bit about these subjugated cities and territories, places like Jerusalem, where the people who live there are subjects of the Roman Empire. We've talked about Philippi, the Roman colony, right, where they essentially were treated the exact same as if they'd been born in Italy. And here, in the the region of the ancient Greek Empire, you have this unique phenomenon called the free cities. And basically, these were old Greek communities that had been subjugated by Rome, but Rome really liked Greece. (laughs) And so they gave them kind of this special kind of middle ground where they were given protections and freedoms to operate as a classical Greek city and how they they, uh, ran their local government. They were also, uh, it was a lot easier to gain Roman citizenship in these contexts. They weren't just 
subjects, but they didn't have equal representation in the Roman government like a city like Philippi would, those sorts of things. I know you guys are super interested in that part of it, but, but just, to, just to give us a picture of where we're at in this, this is a very important city, a large city, the capital of this region, old, old, old Greek roots, and as we see, an already established Jewish community. Now, we've talked about this a couple times over the course of our story thus far, but, but Paul, his custom, as the text tells us, his strategy was first and foremost to connect with whatever Jewish population existed within the context he went. I mean, obviously, right, this makes a lot of sense. You're talking about people who were already trained in the Scriptures, who already acknowledge Yahweh, and so his, his argument is significantly shorter in that context, right? It's, hey, you already know the truth, but let me tell you about Messiah. He's here than when he starts from scratch. And so he, he goes into the synagogue, and we're given this really cool image here. He spent three weeks, three Sabbaths, going into this synagogue and essentially debating the text with the local leaders, working through his arguments. Now, Paul was recognized as a rabbi, right? Like, he had authority. He could show up in a town and walk into the synagogue and, and very quickly get a, a, a platform to speak and preach and argue. So he gets up there and begins working through his argument. And the text even gives us a little bit of a window into this, right? That his main thing, he's teaching and arguing to this Jewish population, is that Jesus did have to suffer and die. He's building up this picture of, of Jesus' definition of Messiah over and against the normative historical Jewish understanding of the Messiah. He makes this argument for three weeks, and the results are mixed. It says that a few of the people were persuaded by his argument, but it's actually written in a very specific way to let you know a couple Jewish people believed the argument, but really it was these devout religious Gentiles who were like, that makes a ton of sense. Let's go with that. And there's a lot of reasons, a lot of people have written and discussed why that might be. But essentially what we're left with here is, is Paul gets a hearing and this church is birthed relatively quickly, but there's not a lot of Jewish influence in this church right out of the bat, which is kind of a bummer. It's not, it's not how Paul usually aims for this thing to go down, right? And they actually, as the text tells us, incites the main conflict in this city. The Jewish leaders become jealous of the success of Paul's ministry, and that escalates into a, like, actual mob violence where a group of people storm the house of this guy, Jason, who we're kind of left to assume was one of these early converts who's housing the early church. Like maybe he played the role of like a Lydia-type person in Thessalonica. We're not actually told, but they storm the house. They drag him and some of the new converts out and take them before the city magistrates, literally, right? Like an angry mob dragging them out of their house, taking them to court with these, these wild accusations, right? That these guys are coming in here and turning everything upside down, and they're, and they're proclaiming treason against Caesar. They're declaring another king, Jesus. And it says the magistrates are greatly disturbed, as they would be. These are not a group of people who want to make trouble with Caesar. They've got a pretty good deal. And so what the text tells us they do is they basically take a huge bail bond from this church, and they're like, look, you house these guys you've got to take care of this. Get them out of our city. We don't want this mess. Give us a whole bunch of money, and when you can prove that they're gone, you can get it back. 
That's kind of what they do. And it works. They go, and Paul and Silas leave the city that very night and move on to Berea, where we'll pick up the story the next go-around. It's a really interesting story. I'm actually really excited to get into kind of the, the specific contrast that Luke sets up between the synagogue in Thessalonica and the synagogue in Berea and the way he kind of picks apart the differing ways these believers choose to engage Paul's teaching and debate with him and seek truth from the Scripture. It's, it's really cool, but we're, we're going we're gonna to kind of hold that, reserve it, and talk about it next time we get into Acts. Today, we're going to stop the story here, just this really kind of quick snippet of what happens in Thessalonica, which by the way, Luke writes this, the pacing of it is like that third Sabbath, Paul and like Timothy walked out of the, out of the synagogue to go to Applebee's and like while they were in there, the mob showed up and beat up Jason. It was probably spread out significantly longer than that, right? But, but, but the story plays very quick as you read it. We're, we're going to look at this shorter scene because I want to zoom in on this line that the accuser says against Paul and Silas, against Jason in this early church. It says, these men, these men are turning the whole world upside down. They've come here also, and this guy has received him. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're saying there's another king, Jesus. These men are turning the whole world upside down. Which, by the way, really quick, you can actually read about Paul's perspective on this experience in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. I know I've done that like every week, like, oh, you should go read Galatians now. We got past that part. You should go read Philippians. You should. I hope you're actually doing that. They're, 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 they're really short books. You should read First and Second Thessalonians this week, especially those first two chapters. They give you a really interesting picture of this exact same narrative from, from Paul's perspective as he's remembering a little later in his missionary journey when he, when he writes back to encourage them. But th- this, this accusation... It's a good line to focus on. It's a good line because, first off, it's juicy, right? Like, it's really dramatic. You know, these guys walk in, these men are turning the whole world on its head. It, like, it's, it's one of those things that kind of sticks. It's got this dramatic flair to it. But I love it because there's actually this beautiful sense of truth in what's actually being said. These guys are saying it for the purpose of trying to discredit Paul and Silas, to get them in trouble, to get them kicked out of the city. And by the way, it works, right? They do get kicked out of the city. But for us, as people a couple thousand years later, with the benefit of retrospect and hindsight, we can sit here and go, actually, yeah, this teaching really did turn the world on its head. This actually messed everything up. These guys had no idea how wild of a ride they were, <laughs> they were on board for. Jason had no clue what he was signing up for. You can imagine some guys sitting in synagogue over a couple of weeks going, this new guy's got something. I think he's reading the text right. And like how he thought of that moment five years later, knowing just how wild of a ride God had them on with the early church, Right? They are absolutely turning the world upside down. I think what's, what I'd like to do is kind of look at two instances of this in the text. So first in the synagogue, you know, it's easy for us to blow past some of these kind of references because we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history and the whole of the Bible, right? We don't have the same theological questions or debates that the early church had because we get to benefit from their theological debates, right? But, but Paul is actually giving an argument, a biblical argument, an argument that Jesus himself made, but that was really a minority argument in his day. 
he comes and argues just from the Scripture, and by Scripture I mean just the Old Testament, that the Messiah had to suffer and die and resurrect. This was not a common idea amongst the Jews. Now, don't get me wrong. They were all eagerly awaiting Messiah, but their picture of the Messiah was not what we just, like the, the kind of things that we connect with that word were not the things first century Jews would have connected with that word. We're talking about a conquered, oppressed people. And they're looking back on the stories of their people, and they're reading about these anointed ones. This is what Messiah means, anointed ones. Men like Gideon, and men like Samson, and men like David, and and men like Hezekiah, who rose up against evil with literal physical strength and actual armies behind them, and they conquered evil, and they fought physically for justice and for the glory of God. So when they were longing for Messiah... They were longing for another David. They were longing for an anointed king, in some ways, to come and free them, free them from Rome, overthrow their oppressors, establish our people again. Let us be who we were supposed to be. We know, like we've read the prophets, we know that our punishment was just, that God destroyed our nation because we broke covenant, but we are waiting, longing for an anointed one to come and free us and restore covenant that we might live as God promised at Sinai, we could live. So when you got a guy come along and says, no, 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 Messiah is here. He's here. He was a poor, quiet rabbi, and he was unjustly murdered by the Romans. That doesn't fit the mold. No one was looking for that kind of Messiah. And if people were being honest, most of them didn't want that kind of Messiah. They didn't want Jesus to come along and say, God's doing something new, so actually turn the other cheek and experience injustice and absorb it. If they make you go one mile, go two. You know what? Actually, hey, love your enemies. When people persecute you, pray, pray for them. Desire good and blessing for them. Forgive them. And then when, when, when the enemy actually comes to him, he doesn't even speak up in his defense. He doesn't fight back. He has the power of God behind him, and he allows a Roman governor to kill him? That's Messiah? It makes no sense. They were looking for a David, and they got a Jesus. Not what they were looking for. And then you fast forward this scene to the courtroom drama, right? And these accusers are spitting venom against Paul and Silas in the early church. They've turned the whole world upside down. They, they, they're teaching things that are contrary to the law. They're, they're teaching that there's another king, another Lord, and his name is Jesus, not Caesar. This is one of the most common accusations against the early Christians, was that the, they, they submitted only to the lordship of Jesus. And this, this made no, no, no sense in the Roman mindset. Roman culture was, was built around the idea of power and dominance. You know, Caesar in, in, in was, was as, at least as much, if not more, feared than he was beloved, but, but any beloved or any respect he had came from his power. 
His ability to assert his will, his ability to dominate, his ability to control the world. That's what makes Caesar Caesar. That's what makes Rome Rome. You hear this phrase, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome was underneath the boot of a Roman soldier. But it was peace, and it was power, and it was respected. So when you come along and say, actually, actually, Rome, that's not a good Caesar. That's a terrible Lord to submit to. The real Lord, the real Caesar. Well, he was this really poor, oppressed Jewish peasant who you guys brutally murdered. And he didn't fight back. He actually submitted to the injustice and received your blows with silence. It does not fit in to the Roman categories for a king or a lord. Rome was looking for a Caesar, and they got a Jesus instead. As this is what Dietrich, Bonho- Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this term kind of famous in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, but people have been saying this a long time. This is the nature of the upside-down kingdom of God. It is not what you expect. God does not do things the way human beings naturally anticipate he would. He does not act along the lines of natural human desires or plans. In in, uh, Proverbs 14, it says, Man picks the path that seems good to him, but its way leads to death. We have a way that we pursue. We have a way that makes sense to us. We, we have desires and hopes for how things would work out, how they should work out. We have things we're looking for. And God so rarely submits to them. He does things differently. Praise be to God. He does them differently. Beloved, the reality is sin has so corrupted the human heart that our very desires are tainted. The things our hearts long for, the ways we desire to order the world, they will not work. These Jews wanted another David. Look how that played out for them. They ran after every military hero who, who claimed to rise up and go against Rome. And where it landed them was the Roman army crushing and burning Jerusalem to the ground, wiping out the temple. And Rome, let's, let's not give them a pass on this. The love of power glorifying those who dominate. I mean, man, spend five minutes on Google reading about the Caesars. These aren't the kind of people you, man, they had it good. They figured it out. They figured out the secret to a fulfilling, wonderful life. No, no, it didn't go well for, it didn't go well for them even when they were in power. And you know what's insane about the Roman Empire? It's not there anymore. (laughs) It doesn't work. Sin has so tainted the human heart. That even the things we, even the things like we can't chase after the right things. Our hearts chase after satisfaction from sources that can never fill them. In these ways, they seem naturally right to us, 
but our heart is corrupted. Sin has created this untenable situation for humanity. We long for things to be different. We know in our bones that the world is not as it should be. When we see things like injustice or suffering or human hurt, something deep within us desires for things to be different. Different for us, different for the people we love, different for the whole world. But the reality is our sin-infused brokenness makes it such that the solutions our hearts are drawn to don't work. The things that we seek out to control our problems, to fix the problems of this world, ultimately, they just don't work. We're drawn to the wrong things. It may feel like your anxiety and your stress would be alleviated by you being just a little more wealthy. It may feel like having the perfect significant other would alleviate your loneliness or your hurt. Or having the greatest marriage or getting the dream job or getting that piece of academic achievement or owning that piece of property or or whatever it is, it may feel like those things will solve problems that exist within you. And you can extend that out beyond individuals in your family into the world. It may feel like your particular political persuasion or philosophical persuasion may actually make the world a better place. But here's the problem. Sinful humans will always find the way to exploit the current system to help themselves at the expense of others. It doesn't matter. You can get it, and it won't actually solve your problem. Things can work out exactly how you want them to. You can achieve every little thing on your list. You can win politically. You can win socially. You can win relationally. You can win professionally. All those things can be coming up Millhouse, and it still just doesn't solve the problem. Beloved, whatever it is your heart longs for, whatever it is that you are convinced in your heart of hearts will fix what is wrong with you and wrong with this world, it simply won't. I've beat on that drum too much. But I've beat on that drum too much because it's important. Those of us in this room who are still questioning and exploring faith, but those of us in this room who've been following Jesus for years and years and years, we need to hear this. Our hearts are bent towards salty wells, looking for satisfaction and solutions, looking for the good life from sources that will not give it. And we're bent toward it. We run back to them over and over and over. But beloved, there is only one solution to the needs of humanity. From the specific hurts and desires of your heart right here, right now, your context right here, right now, the thing this morning that that in your heart of hearts, if you were honest, you said, if this happened, I'd be good. From that all the way up to the biggest problems of our world, there's one answer to the human problem, and his name is Jesus Christ. I promise you, he may not be what you are expecting. He likely isn't even what you want, but he is the answer. 
He's the answer to the desire of your heart. In Mark 10, one of my favorite texts, Jesus is walking along the road with some of his closest friends and followers, and they get into this argument about which one of them will have the most power, dominion, and authority when Jesus shows up and, like, just starts reigning over the planet. It's really, I mean, it's, it's kind of pathetic on, on a level. These guys have been traveling with Jesus for years. They've seen the miracles. They've heard his teaching. They, 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 in a very real sense, they know Jesus' heart better than anyone else on the earth, right? And yet they're sitting arguing over who's going to get the most of his authority, who's going to have the most power. And Jesus responds to them. He says this. This is in Mark 10, 44. You know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They're great ones. They exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you catch this? His response, his response was to flip their desire on its head. Turn it upside down. You want to be rulers? You want to divvy up my authority? Awesome. Go be servants. Give up your authority. This is the way Jesus taught. It's the kind of thing that if you knew him in person, hung out with him like face to face, it'd probably be kind of annoying. He said stuff like this all the time. You want to save your life? Lose it. You want real treasure? Get rid of the treasure you have. Wait, say that again? Yeah, you heard me. You want treasure? Get rid of your treasure. He said this sort of thing all the time. Oh, you want to love someone? Well, love the people who hate you. Oh, you want to give? Don't take any credit for it. He walked through this kind of thing. Oh, just turning our expect, our understanding of the world, our understanding of how things will go on its head continually. And so he's sitting here with his best friends who are completely missing the point of his work. And he says, you are completely missing the point of my work. I came here to serve, not be served. I came here to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul explains this, I think, a little better in Philippians 2 where he talks about this idea from the, from the perspective of Jesus' divinity. Jesus is God. But he didn't think about it like that. He poured himself out for the sake of us, for the sake of sinners. And, and, and when it gets down to it, I could give you a list of 45 verses that talk all about how the kingdom is upside down and how the life of following Jesus turns our understanding on its head. But, but at the core of what we're talking about, the fundamental truth of what we're talking about is that the God of the universe, the only one who's actually perfect, the only one who's actually righteous, the only one who's actually worthy of power and dominion and worship is the one who fell on his face and suffered and died for us who poured out himself for us. Late in his life, late in his ministry, Paul's writing a letter, a letter to his, a man he'd been discipling, Timothy. And it's, there's two of them, they're beautiful. But in the beginning of the first letter, he says this, he's talking about his own testimony. And he has this line where he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Beloved, I, that's one of those lines 
It's such like basic, like 101 Christianity that we can move past that. But let's not move past that for a second. Christ Jesus, the God of the universe, the, 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 all, the eternal one, the one who created the universe, the one who designed subatomic particles and, and like neutron stars, the one who tells the universe to hold together, the one who puts the breath in your lungs and tells your heart to keep beating, the one who controls the universe, God came to this planet to save sinners? Us? Creatures, not just creatures, pretty bad creatures, creatures that don't do what he built us to do, creatures who have rejected him, who chase our own ways, creatures who live for ourselves, creatures who, who live unto sin, who reject him and push him away. That's who the God of the universe came to earth to save. Sinners. Sinners like you and me. Guys, that's insane. It's insane. That makes no sense. When Paul walks into that synagogue and he's like, listen, guys, you've missed it. He's not going to be another David. No, no, no. God himself is going to suffer and die to save us. And people respond by going, that makes no sense. You know why? That makes no sense. He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. Why would he die for us? Why would he suffer for us? Why would he serve us? We are the creatures. We are the sinners. He's God. He doesn't need us. But beloved, the kingdom of God is on its head. It's upside down. In the kingdom of God, the last are first. Wretched sinners like you and I are, are actually given life and redemption and forgiveness. Jesus takes your sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin. And he trades it to you for his righteousness. And you, the creature, the sinner, are dressed up in the holy, perfect righteousness of God. That's the promise. That's insanity. And yet that is what God is actually doing. That's why, as Christians, when we come together, we gather under the symbol of the cross. We gather under the literal symbol of unjust, torturous death to celebrate life celebrate freedom, to celebrate being made new. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Here's what I'd like for us to do. I would like for us to sing the heck out of this song. We're about to sing one of my favorite hymns. It's not a very old hymn, but it's a good one. It's a song by Stuart Townsend called How Deep the Father's Love written in this old hymn style, and it moves from thought to thought and verse to verse with no, no chorus in between, walking through the truth of the gospel, walking through the reality of the upside-down kingdom. Here's what I'd like for us to do. I'd like for us to actually engage this song. I'm going to pray for us, but I'd like for us to actually like just 
stand up and sing. When I'm, when I'm done praying, you ought to do it right now. I'd like for us to actually sing this song, consider the words. And here's the reason why. You know, I'm not, I'm not so bold as to assume, like, I know there are some of us in the room who are just, we just, we're still thinking about what we think about Jesus. And you're still figuring it out. And if that's you, man, I would invite you, invite you to consider the invitation of Jesus. It's insane. And it's wonderful. It sounds too good to be true. But it actually is true. The God of the universe has redemption and life and forgiveness for you. What you thought you wanted. It's not what you actually need. What you need is Jesus. And I promise you, I promise you, when you taste and see the goodness of the Lord, you'll know what I'm talking about. That is what I needed the whole time. I promise you. And if you're in this space and you've known Jesus a long time, I think it's even that much more important for you to stand up and sing the heck out of this song and consider these words. Because it's so easy for us when we've been following Jesus for a while to kind of graduate past the truth of the gospel. We get past the insanity of the gospel invitation and it becomes, it becomes normal to us. And we've lived with this, with this amazing blessing so long that it just becomes, yeah, that's how, yeah, that's how God treats us. I want to invite you, sing the words and consider afresh the sheer audacity of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners. My goodness. You have been invited from death to life. And we know, if we're willing to be honest, that even those of us who've been following Jesus a long time, we still love to return to those old salty wells and try and fill our life and find our meaning the way that makes sense to us. But today I think we need to be reminded the kingdom of God is upside down. God does not do stuff the way we do stuff. He does not think the way we think. His plans are not like our plans. And you can come back to him afresh. Laying down your desires afresh. Laying down your idols afresh. And you know what you will find when you get there? The same grace. The same grace that was there the first time. Over and over and over, the well of the grace of Jesus will never run dry for you, beloved. So, pray with me. And then we're all going to stand up and we're all going to sing. Sound good? awesome. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the truth of your gospel. Thank you for the power of your gospel. Thank you for the invitation you've given us to come to the cross, symbol of death, and find our life. To come to our King, the suffering servant, find redemption. To come with our wretchedness and find righteousness. God, you turn this whole thing on its head. I never would have dreamed of a kingdom as good as yours. I'm not creative enough. God, you're so good. God, give us fresh eyes to see you again today. Restore to us the joy of our salvation as we sing of your wondrous love, your wondrous grace on our behalf.
We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Beloved, let's stand up and let's sing. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To 